when, uh, when I was in the process of learning how to be a minister. So the early years, I went to seminary and was uh, trained by other ministers. One of the, the words of advice that I got, um, and I cannot remember if it was a professor or a pastor who was mentoring me, said, you cannot have close friends in a church that you're going to pastor. So he offered some wisdom about that, and I proceeded to ignore it. I have found this. Some of my closest friends are in this church. In fact, um, it was a few of my closest friends that gave me the courage to start this church. They were in my life for years before the church started, and in the process of forming the church, they were a part of discernment for me. Um, And here's what I realized is I needed, in that proverbial sense, a wingman. I needed somebody that I knew was gonna have my back, have my side. Like, when we started the church, if nobody else was gonna show up, at least some of them would, right? I wanted to not feel alone in the process because you're putting yourself out there when you start something new. When you take the responsibility, you want other people to bear that responsibility with you, even if they can't actually. You want them to be there ready to carry you when you're feeling weak. And the great thing about having really good friends, and I've developed more through the years here in the church community, and I'm gonna push back against that idea. You should have good friends wherever you go. The kind of friends that know you, know your overbearing and difficult sides, and they're still with you. But this is rare in our culture. Why is it so difficult to develop deep and committed friendships? People that are on your team, that have your back, that are with you. Why is it so hard? We were created for relationships. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God says of Adam after he creates him and sets him in the Garden of Eden, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is a profound statement about our created nature. We are created in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal union and relationship together. So when God creates us in his image, we have this internal longing, this wiring for relational depth and commitment. And then it goes on to say that he creates Eve and the two become one, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And of course, we instantly think of this in that actual literal sense, but the actual literal sense is meant to be spiritually speaking, what is really happening internally and emotionally and spiritually. That Adam and Eve were completely unhidden from each other. They knew the depths of the other person. There was nothing to hide. There was no shame. There was no fear. There was no worry that you're going to know something about me. They were both completely and totally open with each other. And this is the intention for all relationships. It was not just supposed to be that Adam and Eve were, so to speak, naked and unashamed, that we were all supposed to be that way. We were created to be in the kind of relationships where we have no fear of anyone knowing anything about me because we have nothing to hide. But of course, the garden doesn't remain as such. In chapter 3, we read after they had eaten of the fruit that they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and for the first time, they hide themselves from God. And it's interesting that they hid themselves. There was none of this like, Eve, over here's a great hiding place, like little kids do that when they're playing hide and seek. One splits this way, the other runs that way. 
It was all of a sudden selfish. They were not on the same team. It was all about me as they each hid themselves from the Lord God. And of course, they had to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. They had previously been face to face, naked and unashamed before their creator. And now they were naked and ashamed of each other and of God. We were created to know God completely and openly and to know each other in the same way. But because of sin, we are separated from God and therefore we are separated from one another. So the reason why making relationships is so hard is because we are fallen and sinful people. We're constantly hiding ourselves from God and from each other. And on top of that, we live in a culture that makes it very difficult to make deep and lasting friendships. Our modern economic system is very individualistic. Think about how we do money and how we make money now. I make money for me. It's not a collective effort. We're not farming the fields together. We're not thriving or dying together. It's me, and then I'll worry about you. And so I make enough money for my family, my house, my food, my health insurance, my retirement, and then if I have enough, I'll be generous. Our economic goal today is to be independent when in past centuries it was interdependent. And on top of that, our modern economy is built to be transient, which is a good thing in some ways because you can be upwardly mobile, you don't have to stay in the same place economically, but the result of that is that we have gone from relational depth and connectedness to being completely separated and atomized. In the ancient world, you lived in a village your whole life, usually with three generations or more of family. So your parents and grandparents, cousins, brothers, sisters, all within the same street all within a village, all part of a clan. You were completely and totally known relationally. Whether you were single or married, it didn't matter, you had family. Whether you had kids or not, you had kids. Whether some of your grandparents had died, there were grandparents all around, and you were all part of the same family, deeply entrenched in each other's lives and known. Relational consistency was a part of the past, but we have moved to what I would consider simply friendship circles without anything further than that, where we have, at various times in our life, close or distant friends, and then they move away, or we grow apart. And so it's, it's like a bunch of planets constantly floating all over the place. Instead of connectedness heading in the same direction, we're lucky if we have two or three friends that stay with us for three or four years. We are created to know and love, to be known and to be loved. To put it very simply, we are created for friendship. We've been talking the past two weeks about loving our neighbor as ourself, love your neighbor. If I was gonna sum up love your neighbor, it's this, make friends. You wanna know the missional calling of God? Be friends with God and be friends with people. So sometimes you get overwhelmed with the idea of mission. I need to go serve my neighbor. I need to go become a friend. Plain and simple. God offers you friendship with him, and he says, now go and be friends. Make friends with people. Inside the church, outside the church, very simple. 
It's something that Jesus saw the need for. The very Son of God, as he walked the earth, saw the need for friendship, and he lived it out in his life. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus wanted his friends with him. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, we read, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If you've, been, if you've been in this church for the past couple of years, I've talked about that word for earnestly desired. It's a Greek word, epithumia, which means over-desire, desire more than anything else. Most often it's for our idols. It's things like sex or money or power or comfort or control or approval that we pursue as our primary goal in life. We pursue sex or money or power or control. Jesus pursues his friends. I want to have this final meal with you before I die. His greatest desire for, for a long time has been just to be with them, knowing he is about to leave. You know, if you look through Jesus' life, you see the priority, the role that friendship had. Here's a couple things that I'm going to, I'm just going to hit through a bunch of these different ones that I see in Jesus' own life. One is that he made friendship a priority. And it's interesting when you look at the way that the Gospels and the New Testament redraws things like family. So the ancient world, the traditional world, and if you go to parts of the world today, the priority on relationships is built around family. The relationship of obligation. You are in this family, the son of so-and-so, part of this clan. Our modern world does not value family, it values romance. Jesus values friendship. The Gospels call us to friendship. The church is a gathering of friends in Christ. That's why Jesus didn't say just, you need to believe this stuff. He said, you come and follow me. He was inviting people into relationship with him, into friendship. And when Jesus' actual mother and brother show up one time and, say, and, and he's teaching in some house, the, the disciples say, hey, your mother and brother are outside. Um, and Jesus says, who are my mother and my brother? These are my mother and my brothers and sisters. This is my family. And he's pointing to the people he's teaching, his disciples, his friends. That was radical. In a culture that valued family over every other relationship, Jesus says, no. I want you to value friendship and build all the others around it. In a culture that values romance and sex as the highest goal, Jesus says, no, I want you to value friendship more than any other. Jesus made friendship a priority, and he gave time to it. Secondly, he gave time to it. If you actually read through the, the Gospels, Jesus had uh, kind of ever-shrinking or ever-widening circles of friends. He had the disciples, and so there's this group of people that are following Jesus everywhere. Somewhere 30, 40, 50, 70 people are with him everywhere, and included men and women, and they're traveling with him everywhere he goes. And these are his friends. These are people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are people like Mary Magdalene. These are people uh, like the disciples that we know of, or even somebody um, like Luke, who was maybe not a disciple proper, but was, you know, one of the, he wasn't one of the 12, but was there as, as the disciples. So he spent a lot of time with these 50 over three years. But on top of that, he called 12 to be closest to him. 
Now, there were reasons based in the Old Testament why he chose 12, but really and truly, he spent more time with those 12 people than with the 50. And on top of that, he had three, Peter, James, and John, that he spent even more time with. So he spent three years, roughly, with the 50. He spent much of that three years on top of that with the 12, and then special times with the three. And if we're to believe the Gospel of John, he spent even more time with a best friend named John. Jesus knew that it took time to build those relationships. It wasn't just on the night that he was about to die, he said, gosh, I gotta find some friends because I'm gonna die tomorrow. He had spent three years cultivating those relationships. It was a lot of time together. When I was in college, um, I was, in a, room, I was uh, in a small group with a guy named Stu, and, and then we sort of drifted apart uh, second year in college, and then third year, we were roommates. And over the course of that year, we became really good friends, laughing with each other, dealing with sickness, encouraging one another, beating each other up, the things that, that roommates and friends do. When I look back on that time with Stu, I realize every time I run into Stu, which is about every four to five years, it's like we were back in that room again. We had spent so much time together in that one year that our friendship really deepened. And then I thought about trying to do that now. How do you spend the, the sheer volume of time that I spent in one year with Stu with any of you? To get one year of living in a college room or dorm now, outside of college, it would take five years of weekly lunches, five years of monthly dinner parties that are going four hours each, and 80 baseball games. It will take years to accomplish the amount of time spent in nine months. And if we're gonna cultivate friendships, we have to stop, prioritize, put the time in. John Ortberg said, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people do not have. Friendship also takes risk. We want to be known, but we are afraid if people actually knew us, that they'd either laugh at us or reject us. This is the great fear of middle school. It's why most middle schoolers are afraid to look different. They want their hair, their clothes, their shoes, everything to look exactly like everyone else so they do not stand out. Because the fear is if you're known as different, they will laugh at you or reject you. And that middle school fear does not go away when you're in your 30s or 50s. But to be known, which is what relationship is about, is to be vulnerable. It's to let people in on your weaknesses. It's to let them in on what's really going on. In John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples on the night that he was with them, just after he celebrates the meal, or during the meal, he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying, the most intimate part of my life is my relationship with the father, and I have shared every last bit of it with you. I've not hidden these things. I've laid myself bare before you. You are my friends, because I've let you in on me and everything that's important to me. Friendship takes risk, which is why we really need commitment to make friendship work. 
Wes Hill, who is a celibate, same-sex attracted man, wrote in his book, Spiritual Friendship, I acutely need intimacy and loyalty from friends. I'm eager for them to say to me, we love you, Wes, because you are ours, no strings attached. You and I may not articulate it like that, but that is the cry of our heart. And think about it, you have good friends, right? When you have good friends, you put up with stuff in them that you would never put up with anybody else. Their idiosyncrasies make you laugh because he's ours. If that same idiosyncrasy is found in a coworker, you're ready to kill them. Even our oddities and our challenges become things we love when somebody is the kind of person we already love because we're committed to them. But the problem is we want assurances that a friendship is going to be worth it. We go in looking for the benefit it's going to give us. Jesus lays out a description for friendship that is giving without expecting return. You want to go become a friend? Don't say, I need something from you. Don't go seeking a friend. Go seeking to love somebody. And don't expect anything in return. And let God use that. Friendship also takes sacrifice. Meaning, if you're going to be a friend, you are going to sacrifice. You're going to give of yourself. Jesus said, this is what love is. Love is that you lay down your life for your friend. John 15, 13. Love is defined as laying down your life for a friend. You know, the, the, the kind of process of friendship, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this. Friendship begins with you and somebody else looking at something, getting excited about it, and saying, oh, you too? You also are in... You also think this is fantastic? And often friendships start with a common interest. And I think that is often how friendships start. They don't start with a like romance where they're facing each other. They start facing something together. But it proceeds as walking in life together. There's a Hebraism in the Bible that's literally walking with somebody. It's being on the journey with them. And friendship deepens when you're willing to walk with somebody to the end to the very end. Even taking from the marriage vows unto death do us part. There's very few pictures of this in film. Our movies today show what we prioritize and so they always have sex. But the Lord of the Rings as film and also as book gives you the description of friendship at its best. Samwise Gamgee follows Frodo into the darkest parts of Mordor, the place where you're going to die. Sam says at one point, come, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it, the ring, this burden you have to carry, but I can carry you. He will not leave, Mr. Frodo. And while he can't carry Mr. Frodo's burden, he will carry Mr. Frodo. On Jesus last night, in another garden, not the Garden of Eden, Jesus desperately needed his friends. In Matthew 26, we read, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes Peter and James and John, 
with him. And he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. And he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Remain here and watch with me. That word remain is the word dwell, or in the Old Testament, tabernacle, the place where God dwelled. He just wants them to be present with him. There's something incredibly powerful about presence. And at this moment, Jesus needs the presence of those friends. We need the presence of friends because it is not good to be alone and because in some way, each one of us is imprinted with the image of God. And so when you are with your friends in their time of need, they're experiencing the presence of God. And if the Holy Spirit is in you because you believe in Christ, you are a walking tabernacle. And at a time of greatest need, your friend needs the walking tabernacle. They need Christ with them. They need you. Jesus needed his friends. Remain with me and watch with me, he says. That word watch is either alert, like don't fall asleep, or be a watchman, a guard. Basically, I need you to fight with me. And Peter, of course, takes it literally later with a sword. Jesus is saying, no, I need you to pray with me. Stay with me. Fight with me emotionally and spiritually. In his hour of greatest need, Jesus was desperate for the presence of friends. And my question is this for you and for me is, do you have friends that you let in on your greatest weakness in your hour of need? Are there people in your life because you've cultivated them over the past few years that on your last night you'd say, I want him, I want her with me? When you're sick and you're dying, who will you let in that room? When you're wrestling with your greatest fears, Who's going to be in on that? Jesus wants his friends with him, but of course, the cross is the story of his friends betraying and denying and abandoning him. And a few hours later, Jesus is hanging naked, bearing our sin and shame so that we don't have to. Jesus, who had a perfect relationship with the Father, is not only abandoned by his friends, hanging naked and full of our shame, but he is forsaken by the Father so that we can be brought near. The gospel, when you fully grasp it, enables us, enables you to have the love and assurance that, that can cause you to love other people without expecting return. Because you've been filled by a God who loves you when you couldn't return any of it. And when you know that love, you can open yourself up to others and let them know you because you know what? God knows you. And he still says, I love you. God did not laugh at you or reject you. He died for you. And he says, you can do the same. So what does this look like? How do we step into this? I'm gonna invite two friends to come forward and help share some of their story and some of their insights into friendship. So I'm gonna ask John Lauber and Tim Donaldson to come on down, and we're gonna take advantage of the TV show set that we have up here. John, you should take a seat on the far side. Isn't this great? 
Yeah, this is great. I'm glad Sarah let you uh, bring the couch in today. Yeah, we, we brought the couch in for you guys and set up the home set so we could kind of be friends hanging out. So John Lauber and Tim Donaldson are here, and, um, and I've known both of them for a few years now and become friends with them. But I, I wanted John to actually start sharing about friendship because John is both a pastor and works in counseling with uh, HeartSong Counseling. And my question for you, John, just to help us to have some insight is, what have you learned as a counselor uh, about our need for friendship, the challenge of loneliness in our culture today, um, just anything that you can give us insight on the need for friends and our spiritual and mental health and that sort of thing. So it's interesting uh, that you closed with uh, John 15 because when I um, asked one of my uh, coworkers on Friday what they, what they were seeing, um, she said that she would often see, and I see quite a bit, that uh, people just are not laying down their life for their friends or their spouse. That Oftentimes, we enter into relationship more on a contractual basis that I will give you something, but first you have to give me something. So if we're starting to talk about um, vulnerability, I'm not going to be vulnerable with you until you're vulnerable with me. So that, that's one area that you touched on. The other that I often see is um, that, that people don't understand their story of redemption. And it plays out in the sense that they don't hold in balance this uh, status that we have as both sinner and saint. So oftentimes, if our relationships are flourishing, that balance is true. We understand that we're a sinner and we're a saint, but oftentimes what I see in the counseling room, and it would be true here in the church, we don't need to just be in counseling to have a deficiency here, is that we either fall to the side that we're a saint. So we're good, we're prideful, and, um, and there's no recognition of any weakness. But the other side, which I see more, is that people get stuck in their sinfulness, and they're not understanding their identity as saint. So their sinfulness leads them to guilt and shame about things that have been done to them or that they've done. And because of that guilt and shame, they're not willing or they're not able to then enter into relationship because who would like them if people actually knew their sins? Mm. So the, the relationships that I see flourish are those that understand this uh, tension that we live in as sinner and saint. That's, uh, that's actually really rich because I think that is how the gospel should speak into us as both we are sinful and so we can't be proud in relationship, but we're also saved by grace and fully loved. And so in, in spite of our brokenness and sin, God loves us and we can love others in that sense. Um, give me some insight into, because I had a conversation with you about this a few weeks ago, about men in particular. Um, and do men have a harder time making friends? Um, and we're just going to pull them out in a little bit because that's what I am. Um, and some of us are out here. Um, tell us, what, what do you see as some of the challenges that men have in particular in making friends or, or deepening them? I would, I would say two things, largely. Um, I find that, uh, um, maybe three things. <laughs> um, I, I find that um, a lot of the guys that I see in the counseling room and even know some of you guys here in this church is that uh, friendships are based simply on sin-specific friendships. So guys have a hard time getting together and making friends, but what tends to happen is that they will have habitual sin in their life and form accountability groups uh, to simply talk about their sin 
and see how God can sanctify in that in them. But that's the extent of their relationship. They just talk about their sin. And I, I would argue that it's not a biblical relationship and it's probably actually not a friendship because it's so one-dimensional and simply only talking about their sin. And it actually starts to reinforce the themes and the heart issues that they have that contribute to the sin. So men have sin-specific uh, relationships. I also think that, um, and, and don't email Johnny on this, this is all on me, okay? So if you get, if men, you get mad at me for this, um, <laughs> my contact information is uh, online. Um, I don't think men have um, good relationship because they don't have good relationship with Jesus. As Johnny was mentioning, uh, you know, God, God's our friend. Jesus can be our friend. And those people, those guys in here who don't have relationship have not cultivated a relationship with Jesus through prayer and reading scripture. They're not used to having the conversations that um, need to take place in friendship because they're not having that conversation with Jesus. So if you're married in here, um, wives, Ask your husbands today. If you know they don't have friendships, ask them what they're reading in scripture and what they're praying about. Remember, right. John Lauber, you email John. Yeah, so, so you do that, you're going to have a horrible afternoon, okay? You guys will argue and fight, <laughs> but there would be some redemption taking place there. Um, so, men, if you want relationship, um, get into scripture and prayer and build relationship with Jesus and also practice those conversations. And the third, quickly, is I, I think that men um, typically don't have the emotional vocabulary it takes to jump into relationships. Uh -huh. <laughs> like that? That's where we stop or something? Yeah, that's where we stop. So we just like, <laughs> let's talk about the facts. Let's talk about what's easy. Let's talk about our kids' soccer game. And, um, and, and this idea that if I would use... Um, uh, young mothers, they have, the, they have emotional vocabulary, but they're also doing life together, that they drop their kids off at preschool and they know exactly the emotions that the, their friend, their, the, the fellow mom is going through. So it's easy for them to connect. And us guys, we don't have the emotional vocabulary, but then we don't see that we're in life together with other people, that the other men are struggling just like us. So what's there left to talk about but our kids' soccer game? Hmm. That's good. Thank you, John. Um, I'd like Tim to share a little bit as well. So I'm going to set this up a little bit. Many of you know um, the tragedy that struck the Donaldson family uh, seven years ago and the loss of Jack, their 12-year-old son. Um, when Jack died, um, it, was a, it was an incredible blow um, to the Donaldson family and to many friends, many of you guys. Um, and I was brought in, uh, in, I lived in the neighborhood previously. My family still was there. And we, as families around the Donaldsons, were just completely shattered. We were shaken to the core by what had happened. Um, the shortness of life, the, the, everything just kind of hit us so hard. Um, and I remember just a week or so after Jack's death that I was sitting on the back porch with three other men, um, not my porch, somebody else's porch, talking about what do, what do we do with this? This boy just died tragically, and how do we respond to this? And one of the guys sitting there said, you know, 
It's like, I, I know Tim from the bus stop, but I don't know Tim. I, I don't even know him. And here we are in this community, like this neighborhood, and we don't even know each other. Um, and we decided then, like, let's maybe get some guys together to talk about life and death, the things that mattered that were right in front of our face, and, um, and to get to know each other. And so, you know, we reached out to Tim to see if he wanted to be a part of it, and some other guys that were all over the map with faith, I would say. Um, Tim, what can you tell us about this group, sort of what was happening when it started, where you were, how it helped you in the process of just kind of suffering through Jack's death? Yeah, so I I think at the time um, I was was looking for fellowship, something to make sense of, you know, what had just happened. And so when you asked about my interest in joining a neighborhood group to do that, um, I, I think I certainly was interested for my own sake, just mm-hmm. to help process what was going on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, so I, I saw it as a fellowship opportunity. Um, I didn't really see it as a friendship opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that over the years developed as we got to know each other. Um, and I also thought, saw it, I think I saw it as an opportunity. Um, you, you mentioned, I think there were, it was guys in the neighborhoods, again, some that, I, I knew all of them, but I really didn't know them very well. Um, and I knew, but I did know that they were all over the map in terms of their faith, and so I did see it as an opportunity to um, also you know, see how God could use this opportunity to, you know, not just grow my own faith, but also work on the faith of the other, the other men in the group. Because yeah, you said even, I think in passing with me, that Jack had said something um, within a year or two before about doing some group in the neighborhood or something. So I think, yeah, he had mentioned before and asked, you know, why we didn't do some type of Bible study in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. So. Um, what have, uh, over the course of years, the, this group that we're a part of has not just done kind of a, you know, Bible study, like we've looked at things, we've read things, we've talked together. And we've done that pretty regularly. Different guys have come in and out, but we've also just enjoyed life together, I feel like. That's helped. I don't know if that's any different than other things you've been a part of, but I think it is a pretty unique thing to be in a small group, but also social circles as well. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. Um, I think the friendships that have developed out of that small group are uh, some of the most meaningful uh, male friendships that I have right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And and part of that is the social side of it, being able to enjoy life together, uh, whether it's just the guys or our extended families. We really enjoy being around each other. Um, That took some time to Mm -hmm. develop. um, And and part of it, I think, was being in fellowship and being willing to share openly uh, and really get to know each other, not just the peripheral stuff that John was talking about, you know, you kind of start there, but mm-hmm. the more time you spend with people, the more you have that opportunity to really deep digger, uh, dig <laughs> deep deep deeper, yeah, um, and uh, really get to the meaningful stuff. Um, and, and I think that's what tends to bind us together. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, that social side of it and enjoying life together is is a big part of it too. And you know, if I look back on it, I think the most meaningful friendships I've had in the past 20 years have all started from some initial fellowship, whether it's mm-hmm. a small group or a Bible study, and not everyone in that group. You know, you say yeah. over time the group changes and the other groups have changed, but uh, those are some of the friendships that I've developed through those fellowship 
opportunities are the ones that have lasted over the years and, and, and are really the most meaningful. Uh, it, word has it that you and John are also friends. Is that right? Um, yeah, like you guys became friends through a series of circles of different circle friendship groups and then I, it was like breakfast together regularly with a couple of other guys or one other guy and that developed into a friendship. Um, is your relationship with John purely about spiritual and uh, counseling stuff or is there anything else involved in it? Well, there's some other stuff involved in it. <laughs> um, we, we both have this passion for baseball um, and uh, actually, you know, you were mentioning how sometimes it's with those, it, there's something you have a common interest in. Yeah. So for us, that common interest, we, we were, uh, through no effort of our own, got into this small study group. And, uh, but the, the, uh, the third person, Ian, in the group isn't a huge baseball fan, but he likes rugby. So <laughs> I think Tim and I are like the Wasps fans, right? I, I think some some be, rugby team yeah, that you're supposed team, to like. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 I appreciate that. Um, it, you two also have April birthdays, and you, you celebrate a wiffle ball tournament against each other as every year, or just about every year. Is that right? It is right. That's so right. what happens in this wiffle ball tournament or c contest? I don't know. John, maybe well, you could share. Well, you know, um, my, team win uh, my, my team wins some of the games, but um, the games that, they, that we don't win, it happens to have a lot of controversy that a ball's fair or foul, and so... You know, Tim wins on cheating. <laughs> Tim, wh what is the record of your team? Versus so, so to set the record straight, um, <laughs> our team has, so I put together a team, John puts together a team. I usually have to help him get all the players he needs for a full team. But um, we, were un we had an undefeated streak for four or five years. And uh, this last year, I re really feeling bad for John. So... Last inning, I, I let the game-winning home run, let the other t his team hit it. They won, so now they've won one. Um, <laughs> and they have a winning streak going now. Friendship involves opening yourself up. It involves stepping out. It involves having fun together, but also uh, sharing life together, being vulnerable, talking about deeper things. And when you have Christ at the center, it enables there to be something far bigger than just baseball, which can be a part of it that is gonna carry you through to the end. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll just uh, hear a song of response before we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are made for relationships, but our sinful self, our <laughs> transient and individualistic society, we, we push against the sort of depth of relationships that we are made for. Give us the courage to step out in friendship, to love others without expecting return, and to know how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Yeah.